Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Vietnam War became the Western world's most divisive modern conflict, precipitating a battlefield humiliation for the French in 1954, then a vastly greater one for the United States in 1975. Max Hastings has spent the past three years interviewing scores of participants on both sides, as well as researching a multitude of American and Vietnamese documents and memoirs. Out of this, he creates an epic narrative of an epic struggle. In this episode from the Dan Snow's History Hit Archives, Max talks to Dan about the vivid realities of strife and the protracted conflict that killed two million people. Max, it's good to be back in your, your lovely flat in London. Last time I was here, you were actually putting the finishing touches to your book on Vietnam. It's now done. You said at the time that it was one of your best books. What's it feel like now? <laughs> I hope I didn't say it was one of my best books. It was certainly one of the biggest. The audience so far seems to think pretty well of it because we're selling more books faster than any book I've ever written before, which is very exciting in the UK. Because one of the things I was very nervous about was whether British audiences were going to be interested in this American and Vietnamese war, but they are. I think people have got the point of feeling that they've read an awful lot about World War II and even World War I, and they're ready to hear about something new. And this was a huge event, that when you compare, I mean, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, the 21st century's wars are tiny. By comparison with Vietnam, between two and three million people died. And the Americans lost 58,000, but I won't quite say so what, but that 40 Vietnamese died for every American. And the scale of it was huge. I mean, one thing I learned so much that amazed me when I was writing it, and the sort of thing, for instance, one battle that nobody's even heard of that doesn't feature in history called Dido. First days of May 1968, a Marine battalion got tangled up in a battle just south of what was called the Demilitarized Zone with a North Vietnamese regiment. And in three days fighting, the battalion was almost wiped out. They lost 81 killed, 250 wounded. They ended up with one unwounded officer and 150 men left fit to fight. Now, nothing remotely like that has happened in Iraq or Afghanistan on that scale. And 
you are, one is writing about one of, after Korea, one of the biggest conflicts the West was involved in. Anyway, I'm thrilled that British audiences are showing themselves so interested in this, and um, it, it's really cheering. And actually, also, I went to America for a couple of weeks last, last month. It was, I was quite nervous about going and talking to American audiences at places like the US Army War College, but actually, they've been absolutely lovely, and they feel, I think, that there are some advantages in a Brit doing this, because I don't have skin in the game. I don't have the emotional baggage that every American has about that war, which still, the scars are still there. I think it lies at the heart of much of the cultural divide, doesn't it, today, that you see in America. So let's, do, let's rehearse the beginnings of the war. It might not be familiar to a British audience. Indochina, what we now call Vietnam, if you like, French colony in the outbreak of World War II, Japanese takeover. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got this big problem. At the end of the war, Japanese troops haven't been pushed out. They're still there. What do you do about decolonization, return to France? What, you know, what's, what's happening? Well, all the so-called liberating forces, British and American, all over the world, they felt their first job. The Americans had great ideals about decolonizing everywhere. But the troops were all given pretty much the same orders all over the world, which is to put things back where they were in 1939. And the result was that the British troops who landed in Saigon in 1945, they were just told to re-establish French authority. Now, this was bitterly unpopular because a, a communist nationalist movement led by Ho Chi Minh was already well established and they were expecting to take control of the country. And have they been actively resisting Japanese occupation? They, had, they pretended to the Americans they had, but actually nearly all the weapons that were dropped to the so-called Viet Minh, the Vietnamese resistance movement, were actually carefully put in boxes. No, I mean, I'm, I don't mean literally. Put away to fight the French, because when all these Viet Minh told OSS and SOE officers, oh, how keen they were to fight the fascists, they included the French, of course, in the fascists. They saw no point in getting rid of the Japanese if they were still stuck with the French. And the crazy thing was that the French set about fighting a war with the Viet Minh to hang on to Indochina. Now, any sensible person knew that the gig was up for empires, and thank goodness, we the British got a Labour government in 1945, which got us out of India and Burma pretty quick, realised that we got to get out of most of the empire. The French, on the other hand, after the humiliations of World War II, were absolutely desperate to recover la gloire, um, la patrie, and they started all sorts of stuff nobody's even heard of. 1945, there's a revolt in French Algeria. The French army suppressed it, killing 25,000 Algerians. 1948, there's a revolt in French Madagascar. The French army suppressed it, killing 90,000 Madagascan people. And nobody's ever heard of this stuff. So against that background, the fact that they fought this savage war in Indochina is less surprising. And it, of course, the intelligent, enlightened French people realised that this was absolutely crazy, but they kept going. And the even crazier bit was by the early 1950s, the French realised they're losing the war, they're taking very heavy casualties, the Viet Minh, Ho Chi Minh are in charge. The Americans, who've been terribly anti-colonial, suddenly decide that these are wicked communists, that we've got a Cold War going here, that we've got to put these people down. This is all part of suppressing Mao Tung and, and the Stalin and all the rest of it. And so they start providing the French with all the weapons and the kit. So the French are fighting wearing American helmets, driving American jeeps, firing American weapons. And every shell and bomb 
that the French use um, is being paid for by the Americans. And every time the French say, perhaps we'd better negotiate with the Viet Minh, the Americans say, no, 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 no. And the craziest moment of all comes in 1954, when the French have got themselves the most terrible hole in this battle, Dien Bien Phu, where they're besieged by General Giap, this commander of genius, and they're about to lose the whole place, and they're about to lose the garrison. They appeal to the Americans for help. And the Americans are quite tempted. They think this may be a chance to give the Chinese, who they think are pulling the strings, a bloody nose. But President Eisenhower says, we'll only do this if the British will come in with us. And so Eisenhower writes to Churchill, who's still prime minister, and he says, he evokes the spirit of Hitler, Mussolini, Hirohito. He said, may we not have learned a lesson from those things and invites the British to send troops. But Churchill said, if we could not save India for ourselves, we cannot hope to save Indochina for France. The loss of the fortress must be faced. And Churchill said no. The Americans were disgusted. The Secretary of State John Foster Dulles sends a cable back to Washington from London. He said, the British are terrified we're starting a, a, a war. They're going to start using nuclear weapons. They've lost their bottle. Anyway, thank goodness. We didn't get involved. The French realised the gig is up. Dien Bien Phu goes. 12,000 garrison up the Swanee, and the French get out. Ho Chi Minh gets control of northern half of Vietnam and expects to get the southern half of Vietnam, which is partitioned at a conference in Geneva, as soon as the Americans lose interest. But that doesn't happen, of course. That we then start, in 1954, this long, long agony in which the Americans are ended up to their necks. Starting off by supporting the South Vietnamese with supplies ending up with, with direct sending combat infantrymen by the mid-60s, wasn't it? Or the... They want to make, the Americans decide they're going to make South Vietnam a showcase for capitalism. Like South Korea. Exactly. And the difference is, of course, geography. That South Korea is a, a long, thin peninsula that holding that line in the middle of it wasn't that difficult. You, you can fence the whole thing off. But uh, Vietnam, on the other hand, South Vietnam has a thousand-mile open border with Cambodia and Laos through which communist infiltrators and arms and weapons can come down what became the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So let's stop there, because I, when I talk to American academics, they all agree on the tactical and operational failures of the American army in Vietnam. But some of them do still say that initial strategic decision, that idea of domino theory, that if the Americans had simply given the whole of Vietnam to Ho Chi Minh, then Malaysia, Indonesia, the rest of Southeast Asia, possibly Australasia, might have fallen to the communists. But obviously that's counterfactual. Is there any sense in which, in which that stands out has validity? There are still a few people who believe that. And one has to remember that somebody like Lee Kuan Yew, who was a very smart cookie, who was running Singapore, he always said afterwards that if the Americans hadn't fought in Vietnam, that the communists would have had all that energy and resources to spare for making trouble everywhere else in Asia. And that by 1975, when the communists finally triumphed in Vietnam, that the other Asian countries were in a much better place. So there is some support. I don't personally buy into the domino theory. And I think the huge mistake that the Americans made in Vietnam, and I'm afraid I think we're still making in Afghanistan, Syria and Iraq, is to see these problems in entirely military terms. Now, there's usually a military dimension. Some of the bad guys have got to be fought. But most of the vital issues, they're cultural and economic and political. And if you haven't got 
something local to join up to. If you haven't got relationships with the local people, you can go on sending soldiers and killing bad guys till you're blue in the face, and it doesn't mean a thing. And this was the lesson the Americans... The Americans, I, I've used a comparison in my book. I've said they tried to solve all these political and cultural and corruption problems and so on in South Vietnam with power power. And it was like using a flamethrower to weed a flower border that... Unless you get the other bits right, unless you've got a relationship with the local people, then all the soldiers in the world won't solve it. And it took the Americans an agonising 15, 20 years to realise that. You're famous in your books for, for meet, where possible, meeting the individuals involved. In this book, you, you've tried to get both sides. What, what did the southern Vietnamese tell you about... That, you mentioned that gov their, their government, the economy, how they saw the Americans. What were the civilians? Were they just scared and thought a plague on both your houses? Or they were, were they actively communists? What, what do you think? Is it possible to make a judgment about the people of South Vietnam? The biggest mistake that was made at the beginning was that President Diem, who was this puppet ruler whom the Americans installed in 1954, um, he and most of the people around him had had no part in the struggle against the French. And the result was that the Ho Chi Minh and the communists even a lot of people who didn't like communism, hated communism, that they saw Ho Chi Minh and the communists were indisputably the people who kicked the French out, who were the heroes of the resistance struggle, whereas almost all the people who've DM installed to rule South Vietnam have been the servants of the, of the French, of the colonials. They haven't lifted a finger during the war. So they didn't have the street cred uh, in that war uh, for a start. And they were... I mean, the corruption was terrible from the beginning that the Americans were pouring in money and most of it was going straight into the pockets of the people who were working for Diem. And all these peasants out there, they didn't care sixpence for Marxist-Leninist theory. But they're told by these guys in tar rubber sandals and coolie hats who've got nothing that if they support the revolution, that first of all, they're going to get rid of all the money lenders and the landlords. And secondly, they're going to get rid of all these foreigners and all these filthy, corrupt landlords and most of the officials of the government were driving around in Mercedes and decking their wives in jewels. Well, if you're a peasant and you compare that with all these blokes coming into your village in black pyjamas who have nothing, then they would say to them, each other, well, at least the communists aren't getting rich out of this. So morally, the Americans and their clients were in a pretty bad place. And militarily, that this whole business, when you take in a huge army and you fill the whole country, with barbed wire and watchtowers and bunkers and helicopters and armoured vehicles and the whole thing, even before you start shooting, you're sort of poisoning the environment. And you've got a South Vietnamese secretary working for the Americans who's being paid more than a South Vietnamese colonel. And unless you get this stuff right, then you can be out there with your M16 killing bad guys. It doesn't mean a thing. But one South Vietnamese said to me, the communists were always reminding us how shameful it was for us to be occupied by the Americans. And what I've said in my book is that what the American takeover of the country, which is more or less what they did, it legitimised Vietnamese communism. And there were a lot of Vietnamese out there who hated the communists, didn't want it. But to have the Americans, they knew the people running the South Vietnam couldn't get out of bed in the morning without asking an American which side to get out. That's a very humiliating position to be in. On the other hand, the bad news, everybody's heard about all the atrocities committed by the Americans. They've all seen the photographs 
of the South Vietnamese police chief shooting dead the Viet Cong suspect. Everybody knows about the My Lai massacre and so on. They've heard much less, and I've tried to write a lot about this in the book, the reign of terror that the communists ran in the South, that burying landlords alive in front of the villages, and when one landlord in the Mekong Delta pleaded for a bullet rather than they said they saved their bullets for the imperialists. And, I mean, there's a woman, an American advisor, told me a story. You said there was a very beautiful girl who worked as a typist in their headquarters, and this is also in the Mekong Delta. And one night, communists go to her home, they beat in her head with a rifle butt, and they stab her brother to death because she wouldn't assist an attack on the American headquarters. And another American advisor was describing how one morning he lands a helicopter in a little hamlet, and they found a figure um, slumped from ropes tied to a tree. And this is a village chief who's been eviscerated, disemboweled during the night. The communists want to show that much, something much worse than death is the fate of those who oppose the revolution. And they'd killed his wife in a less artistic way and castrated his son. So, whereas I think the protesters in the 1960s who thought this war was a disaster were dead right. But on the other hand, some of them, a lot of them, went much further and decided that if the American cause was a bad one, then Ho Chi Minh's cause must be a good one. And there they all are singing Ho 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 Chi Minh and putting posters of Ho and Mao Zedong on the walls of the uni. And actually, these were not the good guys. These were very nasty revolutionaries who, when they did eventually get control of Vietnam, made the lives of its people absolute hell on earth. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk to me a little bit about the, the, the twin threats to the American control of South Vietnam. You've got the North Vietnamese army, which is a regular force, and then you've got the Viet Cong, essentially. Yeah. So you've got a guerrilla force within South Vietnam. How do they relate to each other, and, and which was the most potent arm of, of the revolutionary it, movement? It all started out with local guerrillas, the Viet Cong, who were receiving some supplies, but not too many, from the north, down the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail, through Laos and Cambodia. In 1968, the man who was really ruling out of Vietnam by the South North Vietnam by then, called Les Van, who a lot of people never even heard of. They all thought Ho Chi Minh was in charge, but actually, from about 62 onwards, it was Les Van. He decides 1968, country is ripe for total revolution. We'll call on the whole country of South Vietnam to rise up, and all the Viet Cong thrown into the battle. Well, militarily, the so-called Tet Offensive was a disaster in that it ended up with the Viet Cong in the South more or less wiped out by American firepower. I mean, there was hardly anything left, but totally demoralised. They all left the shadows, they rose up, and then they they presented themselves for destruction. They were absolutely flattened, and nobody knows exactly. They probably lost around 50,000. The Viet Cong almost ceased to exist. So after that, until then, there'd only been a few North Vietnamese units, regular units in the South, but from that moment on, the North Vietnamese army took over nearly all the fighting. And by 1973, when the so-called peace treaty ha, was signed and the Americans had gone, there were about 200,000 northern troops in the south. And so it was regular units. Now, by that stage, I've suggested in my book that it's possible in the sort of between 69 and 72, the Americans when the war had become more or less a regular war of a conventional war with battalions fighting battalions and regiments fighting regiments, the Americans, with their firepower, might have won, and the North Vietnamese were taking ghastly casualties. But by that stage, the American people's will was broken, and the morale of the American army in Vietnam collapsed in a way that I'm not sure I can remember any fighting force in history collapsing, with everybody up their necks in dope and... Um, black power struggles and a complete collapse of discipline. Yeah, so I've just had uh, Colonel Waddy on the podcast in his late 90s, injured at Arnhem, and he was a British military observer in South Vietnam. And he, he talked uh, very articulately about he, he witnessed the complete collapse of the American army in Vietnam. Now, can you talk, wh- why did that happen? There were three different strands. One was drugs. There's never been anything like it. You've got, by 1971, one in five American soldiers in Vietnam had tried heroin, and the majority were on pot. And this is sometimes in operational areas in the middle of... I mean, there was one amazing episode, a fire base called Marianne. happened at a time when I was out there working for the Beeb. And uh, I, I, didn't, I wasn't near the battle, but I was in the country. And this fire base Marianne, one night, so-called sappers, commandos, communist sappers, break into a fire base Marianne, garrison of about three or 400. They kill 33 Americans and they wound another 100 and something and then get out through the wire. And the defenders, so-called, were all 
either pissed or stoned. And they just decided to resign from the war. They weren't manning the bunkers. They weren't manning. And I, I said in my account of that, that battle, the Marianne thing, that you couldn't call them defenders. They were just occupants. They were just living there. And they were crazy enough to think they could resign unilaterally from the war. So drugs was one problem. The second problem, nobody believed in the war anymore. They just, soldiers were refusing to go on patrol. I made a film for BBC in 1971 about a, out with a company in the boonies in the middle of nowhere, whose officer, very good officer in command of the company, and he had to negotiate with his men about where they were willing to go because they weren't willing to go anywhere dangerous. So that was the second bit. And the third bit was black power, and this was purely incidental. But in that same company, when I was looking at the film I made the other day again, and you see that in all the shots, all the black guys are in one corner and all the white guys in another corner, they're not really speaking to each other. And there was a lot of so-called fragging, embittered black soldiers uh, chucking grenades or shooting their officers. I mean, two extraordinary episodes. One, I read all the court martial records of some of the stuff that went on at that time. Rather sweet-looking little girl whose picture I've used in the book. Catherine Ann Warne, and she was a 20-year-old Australian singer performing on a stage in Danang. Suddenly, in the middle of her show, she drops dead on the stage. What's happened? A soldier, trying to aim at his company commander, misses, and shoots her with a silent pistol. And then something not too dissimilar, another Australian group was performing on a stage a few months later, and they weren't themselves killed, but black power guys start chucking grenades, and they kill two or three people. Andy's Pub, I think the place was called. And nobody was ever convicted for the Andy's Pub bombings. And this sort of stuff was going on. I mean, there were literally hundreds of cases of, of people being so-called fragged. And if you were an officer and you, by 71, uh, you tried to take your men somewhere they didn't want to go, you were thought to be too gung-ho, you got killed. Now, you know very well this sort of stuff happens in all wars, that sometimes what usually happens is that in battles, that officers that men aren't too keen on get shot in the back when nobody's going to notice, and that's been going on throughout history. But in Vietnam, it became sort of institutionalised, and the officers were absolutely terrified of their men. So not too surprising that um, by the time the last the US Army left Vietnam in, in 1972, uh, 73, that the North Vietnamese were way, way on top. So, yeah, but is, is that the low morale low unit cohesion, is that a result of the way that army was, was recruited or rather conscripted and, and sent there? Or were they, were they, they weren't the sort of the, the, the blue chip units of the US Army, were they? Can you explain a little bit about well, that? Well, there were some very good units, but by that stage it was partly nobody wants to be the last to die in a very unpopular war. That if you're fighting in something like World War II, which most of your country believes, well, really the whole of your country believes is a good war and something people believe in, then you do get people realising they've got to be willing to risk their lives. But if you've got an incredibly unpopular war that everybody knows you're losing or have lost, then nobody wants to die. And again, I remember one night when I was with a BBC crew, 71, flying back from somewhere in the Central Highlands after a battle to back to Saigon in a huge C-130 transport. And it was just our crew and a CBS camera crew. And then at the other end of the plane, there was the body bag of an American sergeant who'd been killed in the battle with all his stereo kit and his guitar and his personal thing, all there alone at the back of the cargo hold. And all that long flight back to Saigon, I remember thinking, 
This poor bastard, here he is. He's something close to being one of the last Americans who's dying in this war, and that's a place nobody wants to be. And you're willing to stick your neck out if you believe the cause is worthwhile and your country appreciated. But the shock a lot of those American soldiers got, even the good ones, they go back to America and they find themselves being spat on in the street, that their own country had turned their backs on them. I mean, I was talking to one um, American um, a naval officer who said that when he, after being in Vietnam, was attached to uh, working in the Pentagon, and he said he never wore his uniform in the streets of Washington because it meant in 71, 72, he was going to be abused. And the trauma, I mean, I, I talked to so many American veterans who still scarred by a very, very nice guy called David Rogers, who was a medic. And he said the experience was huge. He said, I never get over it. He said, uh, he lives just outside Washington. He said, I sometimes go to the memorial wall at five, six in the morning. He said, I, I won't go when other people are there. And I got about 10 names. And uh, he said, there's Sam and uh, um, Mac from Chicago and Johnny from uh, Minnesota. And I just look at those names. And all I care about is the platoon. And I look back on the guys from that platoon and maybe a third of them were killed or wounded. And I just always asking myself, uh, did I as a corpsman, as a medic, uh, do all I could to save these guys? And, and he said, then sometimes I see things. And I remember Vietnam and he said, one day Martha's Vineyard. And he said, uh, looking at a tree line, I thought, ah, that's like Vietnam. He said, the prettiest things I saw there were choppers over tree lines. He said, when I read the books, he said, I get so angry because I get so angry with them, the people who ran America. They knew what was happening. He said, we didn't. He said, all I did was the pace count for my platoon. And then in 1993, Dave Rogers went back to Vietnam as a guest of the Vietnamese government. They took him up to the place where he'd been fighting, near Tain In. And he said that all the Viet Cong embraced him because they were under orders to be incredibly nice to Americans because they wanted a trade deal. And Dave Rogers said, he said, I found myself thinking, if all these guys wanted was a McDonald's, couldn't we have sorted this out a long time ago? And actually, I think, to me, one of the amazing things about the war, the Americans lost it with B-52s and defoliants and spooky gunships. But I believe... Now, 50 years on, I believe they've reversed that outcome economically and culturally, that whereas the North Vietnamese, the communists, were able to see off this huge display of American armed might, Johnny Depp and YouTube, they haven't been able to resist. And while Vietnam is still ruled by a very, very unpleasant so-called communist government, very corrupt one too, and they're all making money, that the values, almost everybody you meet in Vietnam wants to be an American. And if you'd asked an American back in 1966, how would you like Saigon to look in 2018? When you look at all the skyscrapers, and it's pretty much the way it does look now. All the big capitalist brands everywhere. On the note of PTSD, this is anecdotally, or perhaps empirically if you've studied it, do you think people are more likely to present with that kind of trauma, either because of the nature of that warfare that was often guerrilla, it could be unseen, it could be a war of ambush and surprise, and also because of this idea of the unit cohesion and, and the fact that they, they remember it as a losing war, an unpopular war, do you think that makes you more likely to suffer PTSD? I think losing war, everything in life is about self-respect and how you feel about yourself. 
And the guys who fought in Vietnam, a lot of them, they lost the self-respect. They, they didn't feel, their country didn't feel what they'd done as worthwhile. And the other thing we should never forget about PTSD, I mean, there's an idea got around now that everybody who's ever been in a war has got to suffer from it. Well, that's not true. That some people do, some people don't. I think it's sometimes forgotten, to put it brutally. Most wars in most societies are fought by people from the lower end of society who are the least advantaged educationally and socially and economically. And I think they're bound to be more vulnerable to all sorts of pressures and they have less going for them in, in other things. And especially if you come from a bad family background, you go back to a bad place. But if you're living in a society in which somebody's going to say to you, you were in Vietnam, how could you be? You were a war criminal. You were just one of those people who killed all those poor, innocent uh, Vietnamese and so on. This is horrible. And so I think it was less the nature of the war than the fact that what they did and what they suffered and what they saw all their friends went through wasn't appreciated. But I don't buy the idea that Vietnam was a sort of qualitatively more horrible war. Yeah, there were a lot of booby traps, what the 21st century calls IEDs. Yeah, there were a lot of ambushes and a lot of people just suddenly, one minute they're walking along and the next minute there's a burst of AK-47 fire and they're gone. But I think what one has to recognise is that all wars are pretty horrible. And I grew up believing that war was a sort of, when I was a teenager, a sort of great romp as a lot of teenagers do, laid on for people like me to have adventures. And I really spent the whole of my career as a writer finding out that actually it's ghastly for victims and especially women. And I'm not persuaded that Vietnam, it was certainly worse in scale. I'm in a war in which two or three, people, two or three million people died. This is enormous. This is unbelievable. This is horrendous. But all wars are pretty awful. But for the Americans, they're not valued. But there's another group of people we shouldn't forget. The Vietnamese who were on the losing side. Because today, if you're an aging communist fighter, well, you're an aging hero in Vietnam. But if you're an aging South Vietnamese fighter, then you're just one of those people who work for the puppets, who fought for the puppets. And if you're a disabled, aged South Vietnamese fighter, you have nothing. You have no rights to disability benefits or anything else. And for all the nonsense the communists talked in 75 about reconciliation, there's no reconciliation. That the people who fought on the losing side in that country, 200,000 of them were sent straight off to re-education camps in 75, where some of them spent up to 17 years. That's longer than Stalin kept the Nazis in after the Second World War. And um, they were treated appallingly, and to this day they're treated appallingly. And if, if you think it's cruel to have been an American vet of the Vietnam War, it's worse to have been a South Vietnamese vet of the Vietnam War. Because American politics is so partisan at the moment and so, many, so, many, so much of that divide has its roots in this period, this mm. great cultural wars of the 60s, what, what do you think is the enduring legacy of the Vietnam War on the American body politic? Well, an American general I've come to respect very much, uh, called Walt Boomer, who served three tours in Vietnam, and he said to me, he said, Vietnam made a greater impact on this country than any event since the Second World War. He said it created a legacy of suspicion and mistrust we've never been able to overcome. And one thing that's very striking, and I've written about it a lot, in the early 60s, when Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy first got American forces into Vietnam, that the American people, on a bipartisan basis, were willing to trust their presidents. They were willing to believe what they said. 
And if when President Johnson told them that one had got to hold back the red peril by sending half a million troops to Vietnam, a lot of people, and people I met in the living out there in those days, were willing to go along with him. But where I think Walt Boomer's dead right, the trust has never been restored, that there is no longer the willingness just to believe what your government, what your leaders are telling you. There is a deep, deep partisan divide. So yeah, I think the legacy of, of Vietnam was huge. And another Walt Boomer line that I loved, and I made the last line of my book, he said, what was it all about? He said, it bothers me that we didn't learn the lessons. He said, if we had, we wouldn't have invaded Iraq. I may say I got him to read my manuscript after I'd finished the book. And when he read that at the end, he said, oh gosh, he said, that's going to get me into a hell of a lot of trouble with all my Republican friends. But then he thought for a minute and he said, no, he said, I said it and I believe it, so I'll let it stand. So it does. Well, Max Hastings, Vietnam, an epic tragedy. It's out now. Go and buy it, everybody. Thank you very much. All right, my dear. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.